Hello, my friend. I hope you've had the most incredible holiday season, spending time with your family, getting some good love, bringing joy to everyone, and keeping your sobriety intact. And now we're going into the new year. Fresh start, new year, new journey. Whatever you're calling it this year, I hope you're ready to roll, my friend, because we are starting this year off with a big sober bang. 30 days of support, 30 days of lifestyle changes, 30 days of building a community, and all you have to do is show up. I'm talking about the Dry January Kickstarter 30-Day Boot Camp with me. The 30-Day Boot Camp officially starts on Monday, January 3rd. And this is for you if you are stuck in yo-yo sobriety, if you feel like you are trying but you're not getting results or you're not getting relief, or if you have no idea what the heck to even do. (laughs) This is also for you if you've got some time and you're feeling good and you just want to keep it that way. In the boot camp, I'm going to go live every week, more than once. (laughs) I'm going to be answering your questions in real time, giving you personal guidance with me. You can win prizes for kicking booty and having fun in the group. I made you a workbook to guide you every step of the way. So you have that workbook forever. If you need a refresh or a restart, you've got the workbook and you can start anywhere, anytime. And I made you a calendar of events so you can add it to your own calendar. Schedule yourself for success. You've got all the events laid out, you know, when to show up and what's happening and what we're doing when we're going live so you can get your sober game strong. Stop procrastinating, my friend. This is no time for I'll do this later. Oh, I need to remember later to go back in and join that boot camp. There's no time for that. You can register at addictionunlimited.com forward slash bootcamp, or if you're in the Addiction Unlimited Facebook group, I've posted it in there. You can click right on that post. It'll take you to the registration page, addictionunlimited.com forward slash bootcamp. We're starting 2022 with a sober dang bang. We're getting this thing going, my friends. I'm here to support you to hit your goals, and I've put together a team to help support you to reach your goals. We're gonna have a blast. 30-day boot camp, dry January Kickstarter, addictionunlimited.com forward slash bootcamp. I will see you there. Hey everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you wanna know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hello, my friends. We have another spectacular episode for you today. You like that I changed up my adjective for you. We'll spice things up a bit. So this is one of you guys know, I love to have real life Addiction Unlimited listeners come on the show and I am blessed today to have Christy Cripps on the show with us. And I want to give you guys a little backstory because you've heard me talk about the beginning of my podcast and how lonely podcast world is, right? Because you guys know that like so many people listen to the podcast now, that was not the case in the beginning, (laughs) but even when you record a podcast, like it's just me with my microphone, you know, like it's, it's a bit lonely. You don't know if people like what you're doing, if they like your topics, like you don't know anything. So I think my podcast was a year and a half old, something like that. When I started the Facebook group, you guys hear me talk about the Facebook group all the time. I love it. It's one of my favorite places. If you're not a member, get your buns over there and join. But Christy was one of the first people that came in the Facebook group and was really active and engaged and commenting. And it was such a freaking blessing for me because I needed that connection so much. I needed to have you guys to talk to and to get your feedback and hear your thoughts and to know, am I talking about things you even care about? Or am I just 
running my damn mouth as usual about stuff nobody cares about. Like it was so valuable for me. So fast forward all this time. I think it's been a couple of months now. Christy reached out to me and I'm going to read you what she said, because this is what we're talking about today. She said, hi, Angela. I've been watching people recover and people struggle with recovering. I wondered if you could do a pod that talks about what qualities people have that help them get sober. Do you see any patterns? And I love this question. It's such a fantastic question. So I messaged her back and I said, well, why don't you come on and let's talk about it? (laughs) Because I wanted to know what she was seeing as she was watching people. So I can't tell you guys how excited I am to have Christy on. Let's take a minute and welcome her to the show. Christy, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. Thank you, Angela. It's great to finally meet you in, in cyber person. (laughs) in cyber person. That's exactly right. There's no real life right now. We just have cyber life. (laughs) So why don't you take a minute and give us some insight into what made you message me that day about watching people recover and people struggle with recovery? Like what was going through your mind that you wanted to kind of dig into? Sure. Um, So I think... You know, I, I've been sober, I think, two years and three months now. And I see a lot of people who work very hard. I mean, they really give it their best effort. Um, and you can tell, you know, they mean it. They are sincere in wanting to get sober. And some people do, and some people don't. Um, and I think it would be easy to say, well, if they don't get sober, they didn't really mean it, or they didn't know how serious it was, or they didn't know how many people they were hurting, or they didn't want to get well, or they had some other reservation. You know, there's all kinds of things we could say, but I don't always think that's true. Um, I think there are a lot of people who genuinely, sincerely, with all their hearts want it, and there's some mystery thing that, you know, just doesn't work for them. And, um, and, and I feel badly about that. And I also, I'm kind of in awe that I'm managing to stay sober, you know, I mean, how am I doing that? So I, I guess I just wondered, you've been at this a little while, and I I wondered what you thought about it. So that's kind of why I asked. Well, first of all, I love that you said you're kind of in awe that you're doing it because I still feel that way, even this many years in. Like every year on my sober birthday, my sober birthday is January 7th. And every year I have that moment of, holy crap, I'm really doing this thing, you know, because I just, I don't know, it it's its own miracle, really. And to have been broken at the level I was broken as a human being. Um, it is miraculous to be in this place and to have the life that I've built. And yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I think one thing I've been thinking about since I sent you that note is that it might not be that you can, you know, obviously tell for sure. Will someone manage to stay sober? Won't they? If they do, for how long? You know, there are some unanswerable philosophical questions here, but I think what you can do, and I think this is part of what you do, is to talk to people about what can increase their odds. You know, there's a lot that we can do that gives us a better and better chance of achieving it. And I I think that's what I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, I'll tell you what I think one of the biggest mistakes I see is, and I hate to even call it a mistake, honestly, because this is a journey. I mean, every step of this process, you learn more about addiction and how powerful it is. And so each time there's a relapse, you know, I always say relapse is feedback. Relapse is just, is just your addiction telling you exactly what you're doing. Isn't quite the right recipe yet, right? We got to tweak something, do something a little differently, but I see people oftentimes want to make this change in their life, right? They want to give up drugs or alcohol and or alcohol. um, And they want to just put down the substance and go on with their life like nothing happened. 
And it really doesn't work that way. And if you get just super logical about it, nothing works that way. You know, if I want to lose weight, that takes specialized help. I got to get really clear on what I'm doing. I have to make a lot of changes in my lifestyle in where I go, who I spend time with, how I spend my time, exercising, not exercising, eating the broccoli instead of the ice cream. This is changes all the way around, right? It takes specialized help. When you go through a breakup or a divorce, it takes specialized help. You have to learn every piece of your life changes. But when it comes to sobriety, people want to just put down the substance and keep living exactly the same way. And it just doesn't work that way. Things are going to be different, even if it's temporary. Things are going to be different. In my early sobriety, my life got pretty small because there were only a handful of places I felt really safe and really comfortable. And I wanted to be with really safe and really comfortable people. I didn't want to be upset or unhappy. I didn't want to feel like the odd man out. I didn't want any of that stuff in my early sobriety. So my life got kind of small and it was probably a lifesaver for me, you know? Um, But yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things for me is that I see people, they just want to put down the drink and then go on like nothing happened and not tell anybody. And, and it just doesn't work that way. Addiction is way too powerful uh, for it to be that simple. I, I think for me, there were three things that happened to me, three very specific things. And they did not get me through one day at a time after I got sober, but they got me, I think, in the mindset of, um, of wanting to be rigorous and diligent and really understanding the path forward. Um, the first thing was I was trying to get sober for probably 14 months before I actually managed it. Um, and so, you know, I, I realized I had a problem. I really wanted to stop having a problem or at least learn how to manage the problem without, you know, hurting myself anymore. Um, I really didn't want to stop drinking. I really wanted to manage the drinking better. Um, So a good portion of that 14 months was me trying to figure out how to drink in a manageable way that kept my life manageable uh, and failing at that. So then I started trying to be completely sober and I would get a week, two weeks, something like that, Um, you know, and then on a Friday night, have a drink. And that was all she wrote, you know, for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, and finally, I, I went on a trip. And um, on the trip, I'd been sober like two weeks before the trip. And I had one drink uh, the first day on the plane. And then I had a drink or two at lunch the next day. And by the day after that, I had like four or five drinks. And the day after that, I don't even remember. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, just like it, it blew out of control. And then when I got back, I couldn't managed to stop to go back to work when I was supposed to report back to work. And I couldn't go back to work the next day either. I mean, I, it was like the brakes on the bus were out. There was no more braking power. (laughs) Um, And, and I felt suicidal, you know, like I just, I felt like I was insane. And so I finally called a a good, good friend of mine that I'd been avoiding for about three years because she had over 40 years of sobriety. And I knew exactly what she would say to me if she talked to me. So I called her and she said, I think I know what your problem is. And I said, I would really love to know. And she said, you keep trying to do it by yourself. Mm hmm. And I thought, oh, my gosh, now I'm going to have to go to AA. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they call us the last house on the block. We're the last place anybody wants to go. <laughs> I did not want to go. I don't like ju- groups. Mm-hmm. I'm not a joiner. You know, I don't like cliches and one liners. And I I didn't want to do that thing at the end where they hold hands. And, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't want to do any of that. Um, but I had sufficient desperation. Right, so. right. Yeah. 
That's yeah, why we so call I, it the gift of desperation because when, exactly. you're, when you're at that spot, that's what allows you to be open-minded. Honestly, it's that desperation of, I need to put my ego aside. I need to put all my personal drama about religion to the side. I don't give a shit if people believe in God in there. I don't give a shit if they want to say prayers. It means nothing, right? It has no bearing on my life. I had to put all of that aside. And the only thing that allowed me to do that was desperation. I was so freaking desperate that I had to stop drinking that I just didn't care about all of those details. It just didn't matter to me. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think I, I was convinced at that point, I had seen a really clear example that I could not control alcohol anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I hadn't been able to for a while, but it really, really became clear to me. And, um, and, and I had to find an AA group that fit me too. And I'm, I'm fortunate that I, that I live in a place where there are many of them, but, um, you know, I think with zoom, I mean, gosh, you can, you can find whatever you want anyway. Um, you know, and I, and I made friends and things like that. But at first I did not have a lot of friends. I was so awkward. I was such a mess. I was just an emotional disaster. And I had really messed my life up in Mm -hmm. some big ways. And, um, and so what I did in the interim is I found your podcast. And um, your podcast spoke to me about things like AA, and some of the things that made me uncomfortable about it. You know, your podcast the thing I love so much that you said, Angela, that got me through, it was like my mantra was you're going to be uncomfortable and being uncomfortable won't kill you. Yeah. And I was so uncomfortable for a really long time, but I set my expectations at uncomfortable. Right. Cause that's realistic. <laughs> And I feel like it's only addicts and alcoholics that have this expectation that we never be uncomfortable. You know what I mean? I feel like that's a piece of like the regular world out there, all the non-addicted people, they're pretty okay with uncomfortable. But all the alcoholics and addicts were like, what is happening? Make it stop. <laughs> you know, like, like it's the end of the world. It's like, you're just uncomfortable. It's okay. It, it'll go away. I promise it will go away. But you know, that leads me to, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Another thing I see, not a ton, but it definitely is a relapse issue, is I see people get clean and sober and they don't get that relief, right? Like I felt relief. Was I uncomfortable? Sure. I had screwed some things up pretty good. Um, You know, my whole first year of sobriety, I had a trial hanging over my head from my accident. I had a ton of legal trouble. I had already had a DUI that I was dealing with that obviously I violated. So I was dealing with all that. It was not easy, but I still felt relief just in not drinking. I felt like I had conquered the world, you know, and I definitely see people not have that experience, right? So they put the substance down and they're doing the things like you were saying, they're doing all the things and they really want it and they don't want to drink anymore, but they don't get that relief. And if you don't have a sense of relief, then alcohol and drugs will still feel like your solution. So people will go back because that's how they get relief. Yeah, that that's totally true. I mean, I couldn't have stayed in that place of, of early sadness and despair and shame and guilt. I mean, you can only live in that so long. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I mean, I did go to AA and I, I worked the steps of AA. Um, and I, I had a couple really amazing people who got me through that. And, and, you know, and I had the support of friends, but so much of the work is inside your own head. Yeah. You know, I, they, um, they talk about being honest with yourself, the need for rigorous honesty. 
And, you know, just knowing that you really are an alcoholic, that you cannot control this substance. I mean, that is the number one place. But, you know, I started to notice a lot of things about my behavior, about who I was and how I was behaving in the world. And they were not things that were pleasant to see. Um, but I felt like if this experience was going to get me to a new place, then I really had to do that. And, you know, it, it was more than just the amends. Of course, that's important. And, and you really have to do that for yourself and others, you know, as it's possible. But I noticed a lot of things. I noticed that I judged things all the time. And that meant that not only was I judging that maybe other people weren't as good as me, I was also always judging people to see if they were better than me. Mm -hmm. And and so I was constantly in this place of either feeling great and arrogant or feeling very small and inconsequential with low self-esteem. Uh, um, and that triggers so the one-liner that we have in AA. What do we say? The egomaniac with an inferiority complex. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I definitely had that. Um, I also, um, you know, I, I was very hooked into a lot of stories about who I was, who my family was, who the people around me were. Like there were narratives about the way that we interacted with each other. And, um, and I remember speaking to my my younger sister and and sharing one of those narratives I had about I was the responsible one. I was the one who always, you know, got things right. And here I became this, you know, raging alcoholic, lost everything. You know, my marriage went to pieces. How does this didn't fit with my story of myself? Um, and you know, and so we started talking about those things. And and once you sort of dismantle a lot of those narratives, once you really shine a light on them, you can rewrite them, you mm -hmm. know, in ways that are more reality based. So I did a lot of that, too. And it's interesting in those situations when you get the other person's perspective, right? Because you see how off your narrative is, or that it's just your narrative. Like everybody else doesn't have the same story about you. you know? <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, and I also, you know, I had other people locked into my stories of them, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that doesn't give anybody any room to breathe, to have compassion, to heal. Um, so I think it was really helpful to to listen to other people, to question what I thought about things and to be rigorous about it. Yeah, it is so important that you have the ability to be honest with yourself because we can lie to anybody else, right? Which is what I did in my drunk life. I created the facade of who I was and I presented that facade to the world as who I was, but it really was not who I was, right? It was a small piece, but on the inside, I was a very, very different person and much more broken than anybody knew. And that's the, the danger of the, that double life, right? Or I can lie to everybody else. I cannot lie to myself. I have to be very clear on who I really am and what I'm really doing and have some ability to hold myself accountable to a certain degree, right? And I remember going through this with lying. When I started to realize how much I lied in my drunken life and how many things I lied about, and this is a big thing uh, with addiction in general, right? There's even a piece in the AA big book that says we will lie even when the truth would suffice. You know, <laughs> like it's just a part of the sickness. And when I started to recognize how dishonest I was and wanted to change that, right? How do you start changing that? Well, you stop lying. But I had to hold myself accountable because nobody else knew what I was doing. That was inside of me, inside my head, in my own self-talk and going, okay, like catching myself, getting ready to tell a little white lie about something. And I'd be like, Angela, 
knock it off, dumbass. We're not lying anymore. You know, <laughs> like stop, tell the truth. And it was just that internal dialogue that started walking me through. But I had to be able to be honest with myself about my behavior and not let myself off the hook. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think one thing that gets really hard about that is you have to be rigorously honest with yourself. You have to spend some time paying attention to what is going on in your head. Um, But while you're doing that, I think you also have to simultaneously keep a level of compassion for yourself. Um, You know, because I don't know, I'm a crazy extreme alcoholic. And, you know, I will either, you know, beat myself to death, or else think that I don't do anything wrong at all. Um, And there's, you know, and so I, I'm trying to learn to balance these extremes of my emotions. You know, I am, I am not fantastic. I am not terrible. (laughs) Yes. And the things I do and the things that I think, um, if I can stay present with them, but be kind to myself at the same time, then it becomes tolerable to be honest with yourself. For sure. For sure. Because it's not, listen, even being a dishonest person, that was not the totality of who I was as a human being. It was just a tiny piece of who I was. And it was a broken piece. I was a very broken person. In a lot of ways, I was very sick and unhealthy. And I had a lot of work to do. But it also doesn't mean that we are not worthy and deserving of love and kindness and compassion. And I remember one time years ago, this was so significant to me. I had read some book I was reading, self-help, of course, relationships probably, but it was about how we interact with our partners in romantic relationships even, and the difference in how we treat our partners versus how we treat our friends. In that, listen, Christy, if you called me today and had to cancel our dinner tonight, if you said, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it, I'm exhausted, I just want to stay home. I'd be like, oh, heck yeah, stay home, get some rest. I'm happy to stay home. I'll cuddle the dog. It'll be fine. But if my person called me the afternoon of and canceled dinner, the old me would throw a fit. The old me would freak out, be mean to him, (laughs) probably condescending. You know, it would be a big fight. And that book I was reading was like, try to treat your person the same way you would treat your friend and give that grace and compassion and kindness and respect, right? And then I related that same principle to myself because I was like, well, if I would treat my friends this way, why wouldn't I treat myself that way? Like if my friend disappoints me, I don't disown them and never speak to them again and tell them they're horrible, right? Like I still love them. So why wouldn't I still love me? Right. I mean, there's a sort of pride aspect to that, you know, where you think you can be, this is for me, you know, I have thought that I could be perfect in in many ways, you know, like I, I held myself to this standard of behavior um, so much that even if I was lying to make it seem like I was still holding that, that standard of behavior, you know, I was going to try to hold that line rather than admit to other people I made mistakes or I behaved inappropriately or, you know, and then just dealing with that. I found myself always trying to get out ahead of what might happen and then behave with my assumption. You know, I yeah. I became so twisted up in in my own desire to try to keep myself safe in the world that it was really never safe in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to let some of that go and getting to a place. I know a huge thing for me is, was getting to a place that I trusted myself. Right. Exactly. It wasn't a panic. If this doesn't go right, or if this doesn't go my way, or what's going to happen if this doesn't work out, it wasn't a big freak out. It was so what? Like, we'll figure it out. It's not that big a deal. When I could trust myself to really show up for myself 
and figure out a solution and follow through, that was a real game changer. Yeah, you know, um, sometimes at the end of these um, podcasts you do with with real listeners, um, you ask people what's the best thing about being sober, and um, and I was I had a pre planned answer. I was going to tell you <laughs> that the thing of all the things, and there are many of them, that means the most to me is I can trust myself again. Yeah, it's that so is huge. It is beyond huge, and. And I didn't realize, I I didn't start drinking until I was in my 40s. Um, And it escalated very fast. And it did a lot of damage to my life and the people around me. But I had a time as an adult where I knew what it was to be able to trust myself. Mm. And, And to have that go away, to behave so badly, it was, it was horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, this process of recovery for me has been trying to make sure that the values I have are the values that really matter to me, and then learning how to align my thinking and my behavior to my values. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. So what would you say for you, what has been your biggest challenge staying sober? Uh, you know, it changes, and I imagine it will continue to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at first, it was sort of the usual thing. But honestly, I realized it about two years that I could not remember what it felt like to be drunk. Like, I couldn't bring that experience of what that felt like back up in my memory. And that's actually, that's been really helpful in staying sober, Now, I think the thing that would cause me the most danger is because my heavy drinking um, only lasted about three years, um, I I fear that I might think I could drink again and it wouldn't happen. You know, like this was just an aberration in my life that that took place for a few years. And, you know, it was because I was stressed and, you know, um, and that now things are better and I'm not really an alcoholic. And um, that is a very dangerous place to go. Yeah. I would say that thought process is another one of the pitfalls (laughs) that people fall into, right? The people that struggle to really get sobriety and recovery it is that thought that maybe someday and and this is it goes back to being rigorously honest with yourself right because i always tell people especially people when they come like want to do the 6 week program i have to make sure that people are in the right space to do that program because i have zero desire to take someone's money especially a lot of money and and have it not be beneficial for them, right? So there's a lot of those those little quirks that I have to talk people through. And that's one of the biggest ones that I say, I'm like, listen, if you are telling yourself that you're going to do this for now, and then you're going to learn how to moderate, or this, you just have to quit for a little while, and then you're going to go back to drinking, or maybe someday, or at your child's wedding, or whatever the thing is. If you have it in the back of your head that maybe someday you can drink again, I absolutely promise you, you will drink again. And the other thing I can promise you is alcoholism does not get kinder. Yeah, you know, um, I I have a friend. Uh, she has a lot of sobriety, and I've I've often asked her. I mean, she got sober at like twenty six years old or something, and is seventy now. And um, I've said, you know, have you ever thought about could you just have a glass of wine with dinner or something? And her response is always the same. She says, maybe I could, and maybe I couldn't, but I don't have another recovery in me. Yeah. And I completely understand that because I don't think I have another one in me either. And the other thing a different friend told me in regard to this was, um, you know, what if you had cancer? Like, you know, you had a terminal illness and and you couldn't cure it by just not doing one thing. 
you know, um, you know, if you had cancer and they told you, oh, you know, if you just don't eat M&Ms or you know, something yeah. else you really like, like, and, and you could save your life and be okay. Um, you know, wouldn't you do that? And, and that's what I think. All I have to do is not drink alcohol. And it, it seems like a huge thing in a way, but why? Right. Why is it such a big thing when my life is saved when I don't do it? Yeah. And I just never toyed with that thought, right? I have never questioned if I'm an alcoholic or not. I don't even care, to be honest. Whatever you want to call me is fine. <laughs> like I'll answer to anything. Um, I just know, and this is why I break it down in terms of like my relationship with alcohol. I, I absolutely promise you that today, this many years without a drink, my relationship with alcohol is no more healthy than it was <laughs> almost 16 years ago when I quit. You know, I still don't think about it in a quote unquote normal way, like non addicted people do, because I think about it. <laughs> non addicted mm -hmm. people never think about it. They don't care if alcohol exists in the world or doesn't exist in the world. Me, it's all I talk about all day, every day in a much healthier way now. But I remember years ago um, when I was still bartending and I was sober, you know, I continued bartending many years into my sobriety. And one of my good friends, Jason, they had started coming out with all the flavored vodkas. And I said to Jason one night, he bartended with me and I was like, you know, if I were ever to drink again, I would start with a bottle of blueberry vodka because that sounds really good. And he busts out laughing. I'm like, what is so funny? And he goes, you just said you'd start with a bottle of, he goes, you didn't say a drink. <laughs> and I was like, well, there you have it, my friend. That's why I go to the meetings because <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. how I think about alcohol. I will start with a bottle. <laughs> Yeah, when I'm watching a, a TV show, and all I can focus on is like they're in a bar and there's sparkly bottles in the background. <laughs> I know I have a problem. See, and I can rationalize some of that because I was a bartender for so many years. So it <laughs> is another natural draw to alcohol that I have, right? Like I always look, oh, what do they have? What selection? Now so much stuff is different. You know, they have so many different kinds of drinks that they didn't have before and alcohols and flavors and, you know, that they didn't have when I was drinking. But yeah, it it's fascinating. It's just, it is so much in your mind, you know, so much of the work to be done to be successfully sober or, or for anything, because you learn the same thing in business life, in entrepreneur world, in health and fitness world. Like it's all the same. The biggest part of the work is really just in your head. It's about our perspective on things and our thought process on things. And those stories, like you were talking about the stories we build around things and who we are and how we are and our identity, that's all the work. And it's all in your head. Like not drinking is the smallest part of sobriety. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I remember saying to my first sponsor that I wanted sobriety, but I was more interested in recovery. Yeah. Um and I feel like I've become such a better version of myself. Um you know, a version that I really couldn't have imagined. I mean, in some ways I'm grateful it happened to me. You know, it, if you kind of burn your life down, um, you have to rebuild it and, and you can, but that's an opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to view it as an opportunity and to, to really dig in and, and have a life that just is, is happy and joyful. And it, and it really, it is that I really am happy. Yeah. And I can't even imagine I'm saying that because I don't think even before I started drinking, that was true. I mean, there's a reason I picked up a bottle at some point. That's right. That's right. And I would say the same thing. I had a handful of years in my youth that I was a pretty well-adjusted comfortable person, but it was just a handful of years, you know, <laughs> and, and then drinking started and, but I was uncomfortable before that too. So, you know, I have little brothers that are 10 and 12 years younger than me. 
uh, from my mom and my stepfather. And those were some of my best years when they were babies, because I was a teenager, right? My whole teenage life was taking care of these babies, which I loved. And I was really good at, I was probably also why I didn't have kids, right? Cause I kind of felt like I had already done it, but those years of having that sense of purpose with those boys was, um, was so important to me. And that was one of the happiest times in my life. But prior to that, there was a lot of drama, a lot of trauma, a lot of dysfunction, you know, and all the foundation for my addiction was laid for sure. And then after those years, I started drinking and all of that dysfunction started. So I so get what you're saying of like the person I get to be today and the inner peace that I have and the happiness that I have is not something I have experienced much in my life at all. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting to have spent your life feeling not good enough. And I think a yeah. lot of people who become addicts, you know, we feel like we're different. Sure. We feel like we don't fit in. We have anxiety. We don't feel good enough. You know, we have a lot of really strong feelings. We're also usually really sensitive, amazing human beings. Yeah. I mean, I've made some of the best friends you can possibly imagine. But, but with all of that, we often don't have coping skills. I mean, I did not have coping skills for how to regulate my own emotions, how to solve problems, how to be in social situations. And those are all things I'm learning now. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, you know, my alcoholism was just the catalyst to get me off my buns to do some real work on myself, right? And it just made it important enough. It just upped the ante that I had to really do the work and stay committed to it because otherwise I am an alcoholic that it would have cost me my life, whether that was me, you know, getting hurt again in some way, another car accident or something like that, because I did a lot more dumb stuff than just my car accident. <laughs> that was just the final. Um so I would have either cost myself my life in something stupid like that, just some drunken event, or it's definitely an option that at some point I could have gotten to a place of suicide because I hated myself and I hated my life. And I had so much despair every single day that I opened my eyes and realized I was still alive. It was such an enormous amount of sadness thinking like, I have to do this again. Like, how am I going to get through another day? And I, I don't know that I ever would have hurt myself, but I just don't know how I would have ever gotten rid of that feeling. You know what I mean? So it was definitely an option. I think I could have gotten there. I think I could have gotten yeah, there. I, I, I got to a place where I, it's probably the closest I've ever gotten to thinking I want to end my own life. I feel like I'm in prison with this substance. I, I am not behaving in any way that feels like a human being I want to be. Yeah. And, and I realized I got to sort of, um, you know, a decision point. Like if you're going to die, this is going to be really messy if you just keep drinking yourself to death. So if you're going to live, you've got to figure out a way to live better than this. Yeah. And I knew that wasn't just about stopping alcohol. I knew that that there was a lot more that I needed to work on. And like you said, you know, if, if you take if you take it seriously that this is going to kill you, um, then you really have incentive to to do some hard work because you don't have the luxury anymore of not doing it. Right. Well, I couldn't ignore it anymore. You know, because listen, right. I'm I'm no different than everybody else. I spent a lot of years ignoring it too and putting it off, knowing. I mean, I had I think for sure 3 solid years that I knew I needed to quit drinking. I just couldn't get it together. I couldn't figure it out. I wasn't ready. I couldn't commit. I didn't know what to do. I just didn't have the inner whatever <laughs> to get me there until the consequences were so great, right? Once I once I was in that position, it was like, oh, wow, wait a minute. I can't put this off anymore. Like I have to figure it out now or it's over. Yeah, I totally understand. 
And that was mostly for me about my mom. You know what I mean? Like, because I did not care about me. I did not care if I died. I did not care if I got hurt. Right. But I never, it, I never thought that I would hurt somebody else either. And that's what it was with my accident is that, you know, I thought I really hurt somebody and thinking of making the phone call to my mom. Like, how do I tell my mom? I just killed somebody. Like, how do you do that? That's crazy. You know? And it, but it wasn't about me caring about me. It, it was me caring about the other people. Cause I didn't have the capacity to care about myself. Yeah, it's kind of scary. You know, um, another AA thing is talking about the yet, you know, that you haven't done this thing yet or that thing yet. Um, You know, I I lost all the money I spent a lifetime earning. I lost a marriage I had been in for almost two decades. I was losing my health so fast that I couldn't keep up with it. Uh, You know, I wasn't behaving in any way like the ethical, decent human being I believed myself to be. Um, You know, you talk about getting a DUI or drinking while driving. You know, I swore I would never drink while I, you know, or drive while I was drinking, but I did. Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many things I thought I would never do that I was starting to do. It was just going to get worse. There was not going to be a happy ending there. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's funny because people love to do that. And and I get it. It's just our way mentally of separating ourselves because we can't admit that we're in that space, right? So I get it when people are like, oh, I never had a DUI. I never lost a job. I'm like, well, neither did I. I drove drunk every day of my life for 13 years before I got a DUI. So I'm glad you don't have a DUI yet. I didn't have one for a long time either. I never crashed my car either until I did. <laughs> you know, that took a lot of years too. So it is yet. And I say the same thing about doing drugs, right? Why I'll refer to myself as an addict too, because to me, the only reason I'm not a drug addict is because I never did drugs. I just didn't get that far yet. I, I would have, you know, if I would have ever done drugs, I would have been a drug addict because that's who my brain is. I am an addicted person. So yeah, the yets are really huge, but it is a self-preservation thing, I think, too, in in denial, like when you're just not ready to be really solid and comfortable in that space of, yeah, here I am. I'm an alcoholic. Cool. (laughs) Now I got to get it together. (laughs) Yeah. I I think, you know, just back to talking about about how, how you make it. For me, I think it's really just been, you know, you have to find every single tool, every single thing that you can, um, because whatever gets thrown at you, you know, you have to have some sort of ability to respond to that and make it through, you know, whether it's a group or your friends or, you know, you go to massage therapy or, um, you know, you whatever, whatever it is, you know, you, you go out and have a run or something. I mean, you have to have things and you have to be able to adapt, yeah. you know, maybe a certain thing isn't there in a, in a given moment. Um, you know, so you have to have another tool to use. Um, and over time, those things change. I mean, we age or, you know, other things happen, you move, maybe the people aren't around. Um, so it's this constant evolution of trying to make sure that you have built into your life enough support uh, in whatever ways that works for you to to get through another day without that substance. Yeah. And always being open to different things that maybe you hadn't considered before or Maybe they don't sound very fun or interesting, but you're exactly right. You can have your toolbox of tools and you're not always going to want to use those tools. You have to be open to trying some different things. You have to, because like, I don't feel like journaling every day. I love journaling, but I don't feel like doing it every single day. I need other things when I don't feel like journaling, when I don't feel like meditating, when I don't feel like going to the gym, I have to have other things. And I've had to really push myself 
to be open-minded in that way, you know, and try things. Even if it doesn't fit my personality, most of the time I will still be willing to try because I just don't know. Sometimes I really enjoy some dumb stuff I never thought I would enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I have to say I'm not the best at, at taking suggestions or doing things the way other people think I should do them. You know, in that way, I'm a really good, uh, addict. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> you know, I, I no, don't tell me what to do. I'm stubborn. Um and you know, and I haven't always done everything that that worked for some people or or things like that. And I've heard you say the same thing mm-hmm. before. But um but I do push myself, you know, I do push myself outside my comfort zone um because I have to. Mhm. Well, and in the things that the things that I kind of went um, awry on <laughs> were also things that I had that self-honesty enough that I knew if it wasn't working, I was willing to give it up, right? And and I had a couple of pretty big things. I didn't feel like they would be a problem, but I had to deal with myself that if either one of those things became a problem, that I would walk away from it in a split second. I was not going to risk my sobriety over my pride and stubbornness, right? And and it really wasn't pride and stubbornness, which was probably why it worked out because I have my intent was right. You know, I was making the right choices with the right intent. I wasn't just being difficult for once. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. Well, Christy, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. What a great opportunity to get to meet you in sort of real life and and have some real human conversation. (laughs) Thank you, Angela. I really appreciate it. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.